This is the Lakin Chronicles Road to Recovery podcast with addiction recovery specialist, Dr. Greg Lakin. Real people, real stories, real addiction, and real recovery journeys. The Road to Recovery starts now. Welcome. This is our next episode of Lakin Chronicles where we talk to people with good success stories, basically. Somebody that's dealt with addiction and, and uh, dealt successfully with it. And today we got Justin. Thank you, Justin. I appreciate it so much. I appreciate you. you. You got a great story, and and uh, and you've come a long way, and and really, let's just start with the beginning. Like, you you got started. I mean, you were an athlete in high school. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, a wrestler. And mm-hmm. yeah, I started wrestling when I was about four years old, and I went all the way up until I was sixteen. And even between then, I played football, basketball, baseball, just a little bit of everything, and. Just goes to show it can like happen to anybody. Like it doesn't matter if you're an athlete, if you're the weird kid, if you're the cool kid. Like it doesn't matter. Well put. That's exactly true. So then, what mm-hmm. transpired actually that that got you started taking pain pills? Um, I think it was uh, more or less just like my own personal issues that I didn't know how to cope with. Like my mom's an alcoholic, as I told you before. Right. So it's like. The issues I had to deal with personally with that, I didn't really know what to do with. And whenever I was in high school, I had like hurt my shoulder so bad I couldn't wrestle anymore. So after that, I didn't have an outlet because the only thing I knew how to do was sports or something physical and I couldn't really do it. So whenever I like got all that shoulder stuff done, I started getting painkillers from the doctor and that kind of reserved to my uh, painkiller addiction because it was like my escape, I guess. And then that just went like a downward spiral from there. So like so many athletes, really, mm-hmm. your identity, your self-worth and stuff was yeah. related to wrestling or whatever mm-hmm. sport. All of a sudden you can't do it anymore. Yeah. And Because it's like whenever you're that athlete, that's what you're known for. And then whenever that's kind of like stripped away, like mm-hmm. what are you supposed to be known for then? So it's kind of just like a weird gray area where one, you just try to find yourself and two what do you do now? So I was in that gray period and I didn't know what to do. And so it kind of, like I said, just spiraled down from there. So after shoulder surgery and then, and then mm-hmm. low back pain entered in there somewhere as well. Oh yeah. You got your first taste of Lord Tap Percocet. Mm-hmm. And, and what did that do for you? It was like a, uh, just a calming, like it, instead of just thinking negative and negative and negative, it was just like a, period where I was like flatlined like I wasn't super sad like I wasn't super happy but like it it was just I felt good for once and it was a good feeling so I just kept doing it and doing it and doing it and it was just definitely something like I went to the doctor at first and then that started going from I would find my family friends that had some and then Mm -hmm. friends that had some and then that just went down to where I was affiliating with gangs that had some and just uh, so you did what you had to do because you And, and like many young males, I mean, you got a tolerance quick, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. So oh, yeah. from, from what to what? Uh, it went from the simple, like, Percocet 5s to doing fentanyl at one point. Like, I mean, it's quick. Like, it, I mean, the first time I was doing them, I was doing, like, 5 milligram Percocets. And then a week later, if I consistently kept doing them, I was doing 4 a day. And then that 4 a day went to 20, then 50. Then I was doing fentanyl, and I was doing 20 of those a day. And, and when you said fentanyl, you're talking about... The press pills. Yeah, the fake press pills, those things. Yeah, that's not a joke. Like, those 
Because I would take like 50 Percocets a day and I would feel nothing and I would take one of those mm -hmm. fake pills or even a quarter at some, like when I first started and I would feel like I had just taken a whole prescription of Perc 15s or something like that. Like those things, they hit you like a brick wall and then your tolerance starts building up from there and it's just, like I said, it's a never ending story of spiraling and getting your tolerance so high to where you're doing enough to probably kill an elephant. Like it's not, it's not good at all. Right. And we have had 20% increase in overdose deaths just during this COVID time. Oh yeah. I, you know, and, and, and you know, coupled with the fentanyl press pills mm -hmm. or the fentanyl and heroin or whatever it is. Um, yeah, you don't know what you're getting. Oh yeah. Cause I've had, I just had a friend like three and a half weeks ago that passed away from ODing from the fentanyl pills. Like mm -hmm. he was a good kid in high school, had everything going for him. And then out of high school, started hanging around with the wrong people and doing all the wrong stuff. And he went to jail and then out of jail, he was doing really good. And then next thing you know, I see on Facebook, like rest in peace, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And it's just weird because that's not even the only friend. Like I've had multiple friends, like close, close friends that I would call family that have passed away. Like, it's not even so much of like people know what they're getting. It's people that don't know what they're getting and they're like, oh, it'll be cheaper. Oh, I only have to do one of them instead of 10 of them, like whatever. And then and they simply just OD and die. Like it's, it's, it's too simple now. Isn't that crazy? I look at the obituary and it used to be young males, young females, whatever. Mm -hmm. And it was usually from a motor vehicle accident. Oh, yeah. And now by far the majority are... Yeah. And usually because of fentanyl, I mean, just, they don't realize how potent this, mm -hmm. this manufactured elephant drug that <laughs> missed. And you know, the guys mixing it and doing these press pills, they got, they're not rocket scientists oh, by any no. means. They're, you know, they don't do, they don't. And mm -hmm. so you'll have hot spots over here and cold spots yeah. over there. So you get these pills and one doesn't hardly work at all. And the next one kills you or... Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that's, yeah, that's the thing. I've watched documentaries about them and stuff. Like, you'll have a guy that used to just sell heroin and bulk or whatever, and then he got, like, a package of fentanyl, and he could sell that for $100,000, and it's only an ounce of it compared to, like, 10 pounds of heroin. That would be $100,000 or whatever. And whenever they, like, press them or whatever, they're just throwing it in there. They're not making sure it's at this specific dosage, at this specific time, at this specific whatever, and right. they're just throwing it in there. So like, <clears throat> like you said that you can get one pill that you could do whatever with and it won't do a thing to you, and the next thing you know you're doing another one and you could be dead in two minutes. Like it's right. just weird how that all works nowadays. And I've talked to people where they actually get these press pills off the street thinking at first that they're oxycodone 30s, oh, yeah. oxycodone 15s. Mm -hmm. They think they're actually being safe because they know what they're getting. In reality, yeah. they have no clue. What yeah, because that's like, like yeah. one of my friends, that's exactly how he passed away. He was just got shoulder surgery, actually, like his mm -hmm. labrum got done. And he took all the like his pills that he got from the doctor. And the next thing you know, he was looking for them. And he even asked me and I was like, No, I'm not going to do that for you. Like, mm -hmm. Even at my lowest of lows, I didn't like doing it for anybody. Like, it was a weird yeah. thing. But, like, um, and then a week later, I found out that, like, he had found somebody with him. They had told him that they were, like, perk 15s or whatever, and they were actually the fake ones. Mm -hmm. And he had snorted one of them and OD'd and died. And it can be a simple split de split decision that changes your life forever or takes your life forever. So it's, just, it's definitely something that... I want to make sure people aren't playing with now because 
just other people. It's just, it's like a selfish kind of thing. Like people don't really like the dealers care about money. They don't care about people. Obviously, that's a thing. But it's getting worse nowadays with new stuff coming out and new people doing them that have no idea what they're doing. So just a weird thing. You know, it's not like the old days where the they weren't so potent, you know, oh, they, weren't, yeah. they weren't so deadly. And so, uh, now there's no room for error. And, mm-hmm. and then, like you said, your friend often, sometimes they go to inpatient or they'll go to jail or whatever. Mm-hmm. They'll come back out and they'll do the same dose that they were doing before. Yeah, and, and think their tolerance is that high and then it just kills them. Right. Cause yeah, even like, I remember the first time I relapsed, that's how it was. Like I thought that I could do the same thing that I was doing and it was not the case like your tolerance it goes up down up down up down up down and it was it, it's just not the smart thing to do pills in general aren't a smart thing to do but like you have kids that like you just said like think they have the same tolerance with anything and then are sober for three months and they go back in and thinking that it's all going to be okay or whatever and the next thing you know it's a life life-changing decision so yeah yeah, and, and how, how brutal it must be for, for the families and mm-hmm. your friends or, you know, the the town. I mean, you're a yeah. small-town guy, and, and the whole town is is affected when, mm-hmm. when you lose somebody that has so, oh, much, yeah. so much potential, so much mm-hmm. future. Yeah, and I think that's, like, one of the, like, mo- most important things about, like, with addiction and mm-hmm. all that stuff. Like, it's not so much, like, how it affects you. It's how it affects, like, the people around you because I think, like, the biggest thing whenever I got sober was like one I had to like the first thing I needed to do was do it for me but two I needed to do it for my family like I have nephews I want to be around for the rest of my life like I want to teach them everything that I know like I have my brothers and sisters I want to be around and just make memories with them and most of all like my dad like Mm -hmm. got to make him proud and that entire time I was doing the complete opposite so like now that like I'm sober and doing all the things that I'm doing, like, it feels really good because now I can have him, like, look at me and be like, oh, I'm proud of you, like, and that's, mm-hmm. like, the most important thing for sure, is just making the people around me proud and making them, like, not kind of look at me and be like, damn, I wish I could have known what he could have done or anything like that, so it's cool kind of, like, filling that potential that they all had for me or that idea that they had in their head that I would be. So it's cool being able to do that now. Cause back then, like mm-hmm. you hadn't, like you don't, you don't have any hope. Like you're sitting in your room at two in the morning, you wake up, you're sweating your ass off, you're shaking, you're throwing up, everything's exiting your body. Like you can't think, you can't breathe, you can't do anything. And then the only thing you're thinking about is doing more pills. You're not thinking about getting clean. And that's like one of the biggest issues. It's just, about fixing it temporarily, not for the long run. And it's just weird how you can go through those times and still want to do them and everything, but you just got to live through it once, I think. Isn't that interesting? I mean, that, and that is so common where people that are in that addictive state, they, they all they do is they think of pills as relief rather mm-hmm. than, you know, the, the thing that got them there in the first oh, place. Yeah. And um, I like the fact that you're, you're able to say now, you know, when you felt like you let your family down or you have regrets or something, no, it's, you can change all that and you have changed all that. And now they're as proud as can be. Oh yeah. And like, one thing is like, I know like even with my mom being an addict and everything, like 
I think one important thing to know for anybody is like it's never too late. Like you can be 19 when you first start and try to get sober at 20. Like that's not too late. You could be 86 years old and want to get clean. And it's not too late. Like if you want to live a life, live a life. Don't don't think you're trapped because you're not. It's just all about how bad you want it and how hard you're going to work for it. Because I thought like there was times where like I was sitting there and I was like I have no hope whatsoever like I have nothing like left in the tank like mm-hmm. I thought like a hundred percent sure and I was okay with it that I was gonna die an addict and that was it because like one I was too afraid to like see what it would be like trying to get clean especially with those fentanyl pills because mm-hmm. you don't hear about that stuff that much right now just because it's so new like you don't hear about how bad the withdrawals are or whatever. And so, like, that was my biggest thing. I was scared of how hard it would be, scared of learning everything again. Literally, like, whenever you get clean, you're going to learn how to walk again, talk again, work again, eat again, all these things because you're so used to being on a substance the entire time. And it's just a weird thing. Like, like I said, like, you just got to relearn everything. And it's just definitely, definitely, definitely weird. So in some ways, if someone's like picking up a new sport, you got to really dedicate yourself to it. Oh, yeah. you got to realize that there's hard work involved, but that it's worth it on the other side. Mm-hmm. So so was there some event or something that finally said, hey, I'm going to go to treatment now. I'm going to go get help. I, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. So the first time I went sober, uh, I had two friends that I mainly hung out with and did all my stuff with. And it kind of got to the point where like, we would like get mad at each other when we were hanging out because like somebody wouldn't have enough money or uh, somebody would steal from somebody or this, this and that. And like, we were all really, really close. So we, it got to the point where we all sat down, kind of had like a meeting and we're like, okay, we all need to get sober and we all need to do it at the same time. Because if I go and you two don't, I'm going to be hanging around you guys and I'm not going to get clean. If you two go and I don't, you guys aren't going to get clean. So like, we all need to go at the same time. We all need to work together and we all need to get our shit together. And so we all talked about it and we ended up all going and that was in February, 2018. And we all did good for a pretty long time. And then slowly but surely one of us knocked down the two of us knocked down and three of us knocked down and then we kind of like started hanging out together doing the bad stuff again and then after a while all of us kind of split ways and it was kind of like fighting for ourselves then instead of fighting for like each other and so like and i think if i would have kept hanging around them and doing all that stuff i don't think i would have ever got clean but whenever we all kind of split up like i had moved back home because one i didn't have a job i didn't have anything didn't have any money anymore yeah yeah. my lease went up um and two i my grandparents had moved in with my dad and they really needed somebody to take care of them because my dad works all the time so it was my stepmom and like i wasn't working but Mm -hmm. my dad i was kind of at that point i was behind my dad's back like doing them again because like that's just like, he's like the kryptonite. Like he was the scariest person to tell. He was like, if I tell him, like, it's just one of those things, even though like he's the most accepting, understanding, like incredible, like dad I could ever have. But like, that's exactly why I was so scared to like tell him. But I ended up moving back home and I was taking care of my grandparents every day. Uh, like I would take them to their doctor's appointments. I would like, we would make food together. We do all these things. And then the morning of December 26th, it was the day after Christmas, like I had woken up because like one of my dogs had walked on me or something and I went to the bathroom and as soon as I got out of the bathroom, like I had heard somebody like yell, like I don't remember like 
what they were yelling, but I heard somebody yell, and I was like, oh, one of my grandparents fell, like, I'll just walk upstairs. So I was, like, slowly walking, but not, like, running or anything, and as soon as I got to my stairs, like, my stepmom, I saw her run in the room, and she started yelling my name. So I had ran upstairs and went in the room, and there was my grandpa. He was basically, like, having a heart attack laying on his bed, so... I had to give him CPR, I had to do all these chest compressions, I had to pick him up off the bed and pull him on the ground, like I had to do all that stuff. And then the paramedics came and then an hour later he was pronounced dead, like it was a split second thing. And after that, that was kind of like the uh, point where I was like, I stared death right in the face, I had to give him CPR, I had to do all this stuff. I will never let anybody do that to me. I will never be that person they have to give CPR to or they have to do all those things to. And he definitely, like, pushed me. Like, after he died, like, I always thought about him and I was always like, now he can really look at me 24-7. Like, he, like, I got to do something now. And then mm -hmm. right then, I remember it was really weird because around, like, early January, it was like a few weeks later, like I was doing him really, really hard after he passed away. But like two weeks after I was just had that like thought, I was like, yeah, he's looking at me like I got to get clean, like I got to do it for me, him, my family, everything. So I tried once and I went like a day and then I instantly I was like, I can't do this. And then like a week later, or two weeks later, it was January 23rd. I was like, okay, this is it. Like, I went, bought my last batch. I bought, like, 20 fentanyl pills. And it was like, a, I don't remember exactly what day it was. It was like a Friday or something. I don't really remember. But I was like, okay, I'm going to do these last 20 or whatever. And then I'm going to get clean. And then I did, like, the last 20. And then I remember waking up on the 23rd. And I was like, okay, like I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then... I was like cool for a little bit and then that night like I just remember like it started like getting like the cold sweats kind of like it was very like slight cold sweats but like I could tell something was off because like I I knew something was coming like a big tsunami full of pain suffering and everything was coming and then I fell asleep and then I remember waking up that next day and I mean like I had gray uh, sheets just like this color, and they were, like, dark, dark gray from all the sweat. Like, I I mean, like, you could see my body imprint on my bed, and I was like, I don't know what the hell is going on right now. So, like, I got up and tried to go to the bathroom, and I couldn't even walk to the bathroom. Like, I had to crawl to the bathroom, and I got in there, and I was dripping sweat. Like, I was shaking. I was throwing, like, I was going to the bathroom in the toilet, and I was also throwing up in the bathtub at the same time. And then... I started, like, I suffered from bad anxiety and depression issues, and I started having a real bad panic attack. So I called my dad, and I told him, I was like, hey, man, like, I don't know what's going on, but I need to go to the ER. And, like, I say it like that now, but whenever it was happening, like, I could barely talk. And, like, he was like, no, you're okay. Like, you're just having a panic attack. I'll talk you through it. So, like, he stayed on the phone with me for, like, 20, 30 minutes until, like, I went back to my room, and I felt okay. And I fell asleep. And then I woke up, same thing, and did, like, just the same process again. And that happened for about, like, three days because I remember the last day of me feeling like I was dying was when Kobe Bryant passed away because that was January 26th. And I was, like, because I remember waking up that morning and I felt, like, okay. And then I saw, like, 
a bunch of things on my phone saying Kobe Bryant died. And I spent like that entire morning like watching videos and this, this and that. And then whenever I got done, I was like, I don't know why, but like, I feel okay now. Like I feel all right. Like this isn't bad. And then just from there, that's whenever I was like, okay, this is like my rebuild period. Like I'm going to relearn everything. I'm going to do everything. I don't give a crap how hard it is. Like, I don't care. Like it's either do or die and I'm not going to die. Like, I have that choice right now and I've already went three days so I'm not going back because I like truly whenever I went through that first period of like withdrawals I was like I will I want to like that was a big reason why I was like I can't ever do that again like that stuff was so bad like mentally physically like I can't even explain how bad those were and I'm glad like I went through that because that's like just another thing on the list why I'll never do them again and it's like that's the physical reason on top of the million mental reasons why I'll never do it again but that's probably I, th- I think the main reason why like or like the event that happened was my grandpa passing away because he, he was very important in my life and he had taught me a lot of things and I just didn't want to like not make him proud or like not do anything for him if that makes sense yeah I don't know maybe his passing and you actually witnessed it Made you think just how precious life is, oh, yeah. and uh, you know uh, how it's not to—I don't know—throw it away. It's yeah. not, you know. But then again, I also appreciate the fact that that you powered through withdrawals, and I'm sure the more potent the the opioid, the more um, severe the withdrawals are. But you powered through, and now you're on the other side of it, looking mm-hmm. back, and instead of being afraid of withdrawals good people going through withdrawals i mean that keeps them addicted oftentimes you you pulled it off yeah you pulled it off and so well i appreciate that yeah like because that's the biggest thing is just your body is an incredible thing and if you want to do something with it you can like i understand like we have to take like addicts have to take medicine that way they aren't going to those withdrawals every day and that's just the thing you have to do but like if you want to get clean and you want to get sober, it's so important to know, like your like I said, your body is incredible and you can do it. Like whenever you think you're at the lowest of lows, like you still got a lot of room to go. Like you can definitely bounce back from that. And I, cause I, I truly, that was like the worst day of my life going through that one thing. And like, I've had the flu and stuff since then. And I'm like, whenever I get the flu now, I'm like, this ain't nothing dude like it it is nothing to me like i've been through a lot of stuff so like like i said it's just like one of those like i think chapters in my life or like bookmarks in my life where uh, if i didn't go through that like i wouldn't be like where i am today and i think that's very important especially like with the line of work i do now because i do social work yeah and so i can talk to kids that have like addiction issues whether that's either them personally having addiction issues Mm -hmm. or like their family or whatever because like i've been through addiction personally and i've been through it like with a family member so like i can help them either find coping mechanisms or just help them realize like that's that's not it like that's not like just because you were brought up one certain way that's not how you have to be for the rest of your life and like because that's how i thought i was like i thought that I was just going to be that, like, junkie, POS, uh, mm-hmm. mama problem boy, like, a bunch of stuff. And, like, you, life is a weird thing where you can uh, always rewrite what you want to rewrite right. and do what you want to do. Yeah. So I think 
that's really important in knowing like if you want to do anything you can do it like that sounds so cliche but it's so true like, oh your experiences have made you um and incredible what you do now and so mm-hmm. tell people like what you're doing now because it's it's a great yeah. story so um in july of 2020 i started working at the wichita children's home and that job like I remember I was looking at jobs whenever, like, I kind of was getting my stuff together and everything, and I remember I was talking to my girlfriend, I was like, I just want to, like, do something that I could at least give back a little bit, or, like, do something that, like, is not only rewarding for them, but rewarding for me as well, and she kept sending me, like, uh, links to job applications and everything, and then she sent me one from the children's home, and she was like, read the description, like, I think you would really, really love that, Mm -hmm. and so I applied and everything, like, I applied on Indeed, and then I applied, like, on their website, because I was like, I have to get this job, Mm -hmm. and I remember, like, after I applied, like, I had that, like, little glimpse of hope, like, I was like, man, that would be a really cool job, and I kept telling my family, my friends, my family, friends, everything, I was like, they were all asking about it, and then I had my interview, and then they said they would get back to me in a few days, and I remember those few days, I was freaking out, I was like, man, I better get this job, like, I really want this job, then I got the call, and then I was at the mall with my girlfriend when I found out, and I got the call, and they were like, yeah, you got the job, whatever, blah, 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 and I was so excited, like, I had a smile on my face for, like, 14 hours straight, like, I couldn't get out of it, and then I remember when I first started working here, there, I was kind of like, it was really, really, like, kind of it's hard to explain basically like you go there and you're basically supposed to be like their mother brother dad cousin Mm -hmm. aunt uncle you're supposed to be basically their everything because those kids there don't have anything like they go there and either their family doesn't want anything to do with them or they don't want anything to do with their family or they don't have family like there's a million different reasons why they're there so like each kid individually you have to like cater yourself to them and like remold yourself that way you can help them and um that job is definitely one of the most rewarding things because like you'll see a kid like can't say his name let's just go with like brad his name's brad and whenever i got there he spent 24 hours a day in his room he didn't talk to anybody he didn't do anything like he just spent his time in his room the only times you would see him is when he'd go to the bathroom and now he is out of his room he talks to all the kids he talks to the staff he's always like hey can i show you something hey can i show you something hey can i tell you something hey can i tell you something and it's cool seeing like how you can transform a kid from being so like isolated and didn't want anybody anything to do with anybody because all he's known is people betraying him um trust yeah yeah, it's just like trust and like the I don't even want to say like all the physical things they had to go through like it's terrible and so it's nice having a kid like break out of that shell and finally like even if it's like a glimpse of trust like that means a million times Mm -hmm. more than anything like so that job like I said is definitely really rewarding on like the whole um, just kind of like help building a kid up and showing them like there's more to life than what got like god or whatever dealt you like mm-hmm. god gives you those things that way he you can show you like how strong you truly are like he wouldn't mm-hmm. give you those things if you were weak like and that's what one thing like i keep with me as well like i had to go through all those things because i knew i could if that makes sense like i cut myself short a lot and was like oh you're not strong enough to do that like or you're not this or you're mm-hmm. not that and 
it was really cool, like, getting it all said and done, like, knowing that, like, okay, yeah, I'm pretty, like, I'm pretty strong, I guess, and so, like, I try to instill that in those yeah. kids, and, like, I'm not shy to tell my story whatsoever, like, if they have any questions, I'll ask them, like, or if they have any questions, I'll answer them, like, they could ask me anything, like, how old were you when you first started, and I'll say, like, 15, well, like, when did you stop, like, 20, 21, like, it, yeah. like, whatever, and I don't hide it just because, like, those kids ask for personal reasons because I know that they're trying to see, like, if I'll tell them as in, like, a trust thing. Because I trust all those kids. Like, they're my family outside of my family now. Like, all those kids, like, we're a whole, like, we have kids, like I said, that would stay in the rooms all the time. Or they were fighting all the time. Or they were in gangs. Or their family used to beat on them or whatever. And now, like, they trust us. And it's not only me. Like, we have an incredible staff there. But, like they trust all of us to be that person for them that they never had. So it's, it's really important. And I think the Wichita Children Home is like absolutely incredible. And I wouldn't want any other job, like, especially right now. Like, I think this is really important and like gonna, what I want to do for a long time. You're going to change so many lives for the better. And I, I am just, I mean, they can tell that you cared. And sometimes oh, okay. I just want somebody that actually cares. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, just the fact you're willing to share with them um, your story because yeah. um, it gives them hope as well that they can mm -hmm. battle on and battle through, and it's you know it's a good success story. So yeah, one other thing would so I mean you've been doing treatment wise, mm -hmm. the suboxone is what yeah. what helped I think, mm -hmm. and then also you talked about mood disorders as well, yeah. and that's that's so important to touch upon as well. Um, because you have to treat both the addiction and the mood disorder. 100%. And so, so what, what did that look like for you? So I think that one thing a lot of people get wrong is that as soon as you get on Suboxone, your problems are cured mm -hmm. and that is mm -hmm. not it. Like mm -hmm. you got to work on yourself while you're taking that. Like it helps like a substantial amount. Like it really truly does. But if you don't got your mental right, like nothing else will like change like you're still going to be upset you're still going to get depressed you're still not going to know how to cope with those things like you have to work on your mental too so like i remember like one thing whenever i got sober was like okay i'm going to be a lot more open i'm gonna be more i focus on that like mental aspect of everything because physically i was okay because that's what the suboxone is for is like the mm -hmm. physical withdrawals of painkillers Mm -hmm. But the mental, you have to keep that in check as well. And I think that's one, that's, if not more important than the Suboxone itself. And right. I think, like I said, I think Suboxone is incredible and it helped me more than I could ever imagine. But I just definitely think that the mental aspect of everything is very, very important. Right. And really, there's nobody else that can do it for you other than yourself. So yeah. I like the fact that you're always trying to work towards self-improvement and mm -hmm. self-exploration and honesty with not just people around you, but yourself, mm -hmm. you know, is huge. And the fact that you're, you and your homeboys would ask each other difficult questions oh, of each yeah. other. I mean, that's how you learn mm -hmm. about yourself is that somebody's got to ask you really the right question. Mm -hmm. that and that's the good thing, like with my family, because like my family has dealt with addiction, like on a family friend mm -hmm. or like a family, family side of it, like with my mom being an addict. Mm -hmm. And so like, whenever they ask me questions or like have any inquiries about anything, like I always tell them because like, like I said, I don't like hiding anything. And like my girlfriend, she is very like, um, 
curious, I would say, about everything. And, like, I wasn't with her whenever I was, like, mm-hmm. all on my stuff or whatever. So she, like, she sees one version of me and she doesn't know the other version. Like, the drug addict that right. fought every day of his life and was mm-hmm. affiliated with gangs and shot heroin at work. Like, a bunch of, like, mm-hmm. she doesn't see any of that. She sees, mm-hmm. like, the refurbished, clean, <laughs> like, very nice, like, not angry kind of guy so like i'm still learning things like that's a one important thing like i would say as well like you're gonna have to relearn so much whenever you get sober and like don't think of it as a scary thing think of it as like a cool thing because like i remember whenever i would get angry i would do pills whenever i get sad i would do pills whenever i would get mad i would do pills whenever i would feel anything i would Mm -hmm. do pills and now that like i'm sober and i'm cleaning everything whenever i get mad i was like what do I do? What do I do? And like, I would freak out. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to go punch my punchy bag. Whenever I get sad, I would talk to somebody about it. Whenever I would get flustered, I would sit there and be like, okay, it's not that big of a deal. Like I would talk myself out of those things rather than resorting to the bad thing. And I think that's a very important thing as well. Like it's just being open with the people that you're close with about everything that's going on because as much as it is like you have to do it for you and only you, you need people to not necessarily rely on, but you need people in your life that'll be like, okay, I can see something's up, like what's going on. Like you need those people, you need a support system. And I was lucky and privileged enough to have like the most incredible support system. Like my family and my girlfriend are like single-handedly the best things that I could ever ask for. And like, that's one thing like I always get emotional about is because like, It's just so weird to think, like, I was so, 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 so close to, like, not being with them and, like, not seeing my nephew grow up or, like, not seeing my sister about to have twins or not seeing my dad get married or not seeing all these things. And it's definitely, like, it always chokes me up every time I talk about it. It's because it's so, like, it was that close to getting taken from me. But then again, like I said, you can rewrite whatever you want to rewrite. So it's important knowing that because if I didn't trust that, and knowing that I could rewrite whatever I wanted to, like, I wouldn't see my sister have those babies. I wouldn't see my nephews grow up, like, a bunch of things, so. That's that's awesome. And I like the fact that you had basically a game plan for every contingency. Because mm-hmm. you're going to have weak moments, and we all have weak moments, but like you said, you developed a support system, and they would catch you before mm-hmm. you got too weak or did something yep. that you knew would be self-destructive. Well, mm-hmm. Justin, this is a fantastic story, and I... Appreciate the fact so much that not only have you turned your life around, but you're going to spend your future turning other lives around and mm-hmm. and all those sports and everything. I mean, basically, you're a new life coach, basically, yep. for so many of these kids. And, yes, sir. And uh, hopefully you'll, your team will be just like Alabama, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Huh? Oh, yeah. yeah. Roll tight, baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, take care. Thank you again, yeah, Justin. I appreciate you. it so much. Mm-hmm. It was awesome, man. All right. Dr. Lakin is a board-certified family medicine doctor with an emphasis in addiction medicine and over 25 years of experience. For addiction recovery services in the Wichita area, please visit www.centerforchangeks.com or visit samhsa.gov for a national directory of resources and recovery centers in your area. You can also find these links in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to the Lakin Chronicles Road to Recovery podcast. And remember, you've got this.